0: This sermon has its text in the book of Hebrews, it's chapter 7. The book of Hebrews is over past the epistles of the Apostle Paul, back over toward the end of the New Testament. it's not too hard to find, so I want you to turn with me to that passage. It's in the 7th chapter, and I'll read verses 22 through 26. The author of the book of Hebrews is establishing the permanent priesthood and he talks about Jesus and says, and so much the more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But He on the other hand "...because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners." "...and exalted above the heavens." Now, there's an interesting play on words in verse 26. And it is, and for, for it was fitting. And, and it's um, kind of necessary to uh, get some other translations light on that, that interesting play on words. For example, the centenary translation has it this way. "...for we needed just such a high priest..." The Weymouth Translation says, "...such a high priest as this was exactly suited to our need." The New English Bible has it, "...such a high priest does indeed fit our condition." And the Amplified Bible says, or reads, "...here is the high priest perfectly adapted to our needs." Now, I don't think I'm being um, sacrilegious or uh, blasphemous when I say this, that Jesus Christ is tailor-made for you. Uh, A few years ago when I pastored down in West Texas, there was this uh, older couple who kind of had a lot of money and had no children, didn't have anywhere to spend their money, so they kind of adopted... um, Margaret and I as their parents. Now, if that fits any of you, we're up for adoption. Uh, and and, and uh, they wanted to do something for us all the time. And one day, her name was Nora Redman. Nora Collins. she said, Gerald, there's a guy who's been coming through uh, Tulia about once every six months. He's a, he's a tailor. He sets up down in the motel. He said, my husband has been uh, buying suits from him for years. And I want you to go down and get fitted for a suit. Well, that didn't take me long to get down there <laughs> to the motel. found this guy, and he had all these swatches of clothes in there, just hundreds of uh, pieces of material. And uh, I told him I'd come to be fitted for a suit. And so he began to take measurements. Now he measured uh, my shoulder from my shoulder to my, to my elbow, and then he measured from the elbow to the, to the wrist. And, and he, he measured my chest. He measured my waist and laughed and uh, said, I think I need to get another measurement. He couldn't believe it. And and he measured my thighs. He, He measured from my hip down to my knee. And he just measured, you know, just all kinds of measurements. And he started asking questions, you know, personal questions like, how much do you weigh? And what color are your eyes? And he was writing all this stuff down. And when he finished, he, uh, he, he uh, let me pick out the, the material that I wanted. Well, about three months later, a couple of months later, they called me and my suit was ready. And I went down there and I got my suit and, and tried that thing on. I've never had such a fit, it was just perfect. Perfect fit. And after that, for about every six months after that, when he'd come through town, I'd go down there and get measured. And every time, he'd measure me again. I guess he thought my weight was shifting a little, you know, or something. But, but never have had such, such clothes as I had during the time I lived out there in Tulia. Just perfectly uh, tailor-made for this uh, physical body of mine. Now, what the author of the book of Hebrews is saying is, that whatever your condition is, Jesus is tailor-made for it. Whatever your needs are, it doesn't matter what your needs are, He is perfectly suited for your needs. As a matter of fact, He's the only one who is. And He uses a word here for permanent priesthood... And the word is unalterable. It means that it's non-transferable. It can be handed down to someone else. In other words, He's the only one who is tailor-made just for you. And there's not anybody else who will ever fit that place that He is tailor-made for. There's nobody else who can fill that gap. Whatever your need is, whatever your needs are, He is just perfectly suited. He's tailor-made for those needs. As a matter of fact, We might better entitle this sermon, The Suited Savior. And if you'll look at verse 25, he gives three reasons why Jesus is just tailor made for you. In the first place, because he says he is able to save to the uttermost, he is able to save. Now, you say, Well, I don't get too excited about that. I've known all my lifetime that Jesus was able to save. He died on the cross and rose again to be my Savior. And so we need to do a little work on what that word save means. For whenever you hear that word save or being saved, what you probably think about is the initial act of salvation. That's what we all think about. We say, Yes, I was saved. And we refer back to that initial encounter, that initial act of salvation. It's kind of a threadbare word, really. It reminds me of some drapes that used to hang in our house. They were beautiful drapes but they were faded on one side because they were too long exposed to the light and and the color was drained from them. And words are like that. And this is one of those words. We've used the word save so often and so much and it always refers to that experience, the initial experience of salvation, that it has lost its color, it's lost its impact. Now the word save in the New Testament refers to the whole range of life. And it means to make complete or whole. The Old Testament word for sin means to be confined or to be shut up. And to be saved means to give breathing room, to make spaces. It means literally to be released from pressure. And there is nothing that's more needed today than that. So when he's talking about being saved, he's not just talking about the initial act of salvation. He's talking about that continuous, continual work of God in your life from the beginning to the end that that meets every need you have. Now one time ago, a long time ago, I mentioned that somebody said that salvation for most of us was like an iron bed, you know, it's firm on both ends and sagging in the middle. You ask somebody, have you ever been saved? You bet I was saved when I was 12 years old. I walked the aisle. I got saved. You ask somebody, are you sure you're going to heaven? You bet. If I died tonight, I know I'd wake up in heaven, wherever that is. I have every confidence of that. Well, what about now? Well, it's kind of sagging right now. that sound like anybody you know? The Apostle Paul said, he that, that gave him up freely for us, that's, that, he's talking about Jesus in the, in the encounter of salvation, in, in, in the cross experience, He that del- delivered His Son up for, all, for us. How shall He not freely with Him give us all things? Look, my friend, if Jesus died for your sin to save you, don't you think that He can help you with that financial problem you have today? If Jesus died to save you from sin, don't you think that He could help you work through that marital difficulty that you're striving under right now? Don't you think that Jesus is able to save you in the present tense, that is, continuously save and meet your needs? He knows all my needs. He knows the frustrations that are in my life. He knows the turmoil that is in my life. He knows because He's been there. He's perfectly suited for every need I have in the past and the present and in the future. Now I want to remind you something. Somebody said all preaching is is just reminding folks of what they already know they haven't done anything about. I want to remind you that in the Bible salvation has three tenses. It has a past tense, I have been saved. It has a future tense, I shall be saved. But it has a present tense, I am being saved. And I don't, I don't know whether you know this or not, but I've discovered that the great bulk of the New Testament deals with the present tense. Not with the past, not with the future, but with the present. Now most of our preaching deals with the past and the future. But the great book of the New Testament concerning salvation deals with the present tense and it says that Jesus continually saves you. He continually meets the need of your life. He continually saves you. And the word is that He saves to the uttermost and it's like a two-sided coin. It means that He saves one in the totality of His personhood, mind, His body, soul, and spirit. And He saves him to the point of termination, which is an endless salvation in heaven. But what He began, Paul says, what He has begun in you, He will perfect until the day of Jesus Christ, until the day of redemption. Now, what God began when He saved you, He just keeps on doing, and that is to meet your needs. You think God's going to start something he can't finish? Mm. Now, it's the nature of man to start something he can't finish. I heard about a, a, a man who had a little son named Jimmy, and Jimmy came into him came into the house one day and while, while, this, while his father was reading the paper and watching a little news. And Jimmy announced to his father, he said, Billy's dad has a list of all the people he can whip. And he says, you're on the top of the list. Well, Jimmy's dad not going to take that sitting down. I mean, he's 250 pounds, and that just kind of flies all over him. So he leaves his newspaper and his news and he goes down the street, knocks on the door where Billy's father lives. Billy's father comes to the door. He says, Jimmy says that Billy says that you have a list with all the guys you can whip on it, and I'm on the top of the list. Is, list. is that true? The guy said, yeah, it is. He said, well, you can't whip me. Look at me. You can't whip me. What are you going to do about that? Billy's father thought about it and he said, well, I guess I'm just going to have to take you off the list. (laughs) Now, it is in the nature of man, it is in the nature of man to start something he can't finish. But I want to tell you something, God never starts something he can't finish. He that began a good work in you will perfect that until the day of redemption. That means that the need you have today is just what he's suited to deal with. Now there's some of us this morning who need to be saved from some things from jealousy and from envy, from a critical and censorious spirit, from a feeling of hatred and animosity toward others, from some enslaving habit. Listen, He's tailor-made for that. He is able to save you, not from the uttermost, but to the uttermost. Whatever you have in your life right now, He's able to save you from. And you'll notice in the Scripture that He never saves one in His sin. He always saves him from His sin. I made a discovery not too long ago as I was reading in my quiet time in the book of John, this, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the epistle of John, that he said that Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil and to save one from his sins. And he's talking there to Christians. And he means in the present, in the present tense. Not only is he able to save, the scripture says that he is alive to save. Now, this is what he says. You notice in verse 25 he says, For he remains alive, he ever lives. Now there are two things that need to be said about that. I want you to hang on to these. They're 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 vital to what I want to say. Two things. First is that real hope, whatever that is, real hope, that is confidence assurance, confident assurance, must be placed in a person and not in words or promises alone. Did you hear that? Were you watching me now? Real hope must be placed in a person and not in words alone. One day God called Abraham to the door of his tent and he said, Abraham, look out. It was night. He said, look out at the stars. And he saw all these stars, thousands, billions of them, just like beautiful flowers resting, nestled against a black um, metal. And he said, Abraham... I'm going to make your seed as plentiful as the stars in the sky. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. It's always a person that makes a promise trustworthy. And Abraham believed in the person of God. Therefore, he believed in the promise of God. It was during the Great Depression and a lot of the banks were going broke. And the word got out that the second national bank in Chicago was going broke. And so people gathered at night to, to, to storm the doors of that bank the next morning trying to get their money out. I mean, there were so many of them, they lined them up and they went around the bank and went for blocks down the street. And they were all waiting as soon as the doors were open. They were going to rush in and try to get their money before they lost it all in the crash. Ten o'clock the next morning, a man stepped out of the bank and said, and, and, and asked the people all to get quiet and get where they could hear him. And they all kind of gathered around, just a mob of them, looking up at him in and angry and, 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 and frightened faces. And this way he said. He said, I'm Philip Armour. Uh, you know, Armour uh, meat packer. He said, I'm Philip Armour. All night long, I've been going over the books in the bank. I know you're frightened and terrified. I want you to know that your money is safe. And I, Philip Armour, will guarantee every cent that's in this bank. If you'll go home and trust me, I'll guarantee every cent you'll not lose a penny. And they translated that statement to those who couldn't speak English. It was a bank near the stockyard, so there were a lot of immigrants there. And all of a sudden, a shout went up, and the people dispersed and left. For it was the person that made the promise trustworthy. Now watch this. Real hope is always in a person. And a hope you can live by this morning is a hope that is in Jesus Christ. Now, why? The early church believed that they could stake their life upon Him. Why? Because He was resurrected from the dead. You can stake your life this morning on Jesus Christ because He lives. Now Christianity is not faith in in ourselves or in a word or in a promise. Christianity is faith in a person and that person is Jesus Christ and you can be sure of Him because He has triumphed over death and sin. He has overcome the grave. Your confidence this morning is well placed because Jesus Christ remains alive. Now it's a tragedy that we speak so seldom of the resurrection. I mean, the early church, in the early church, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was, their, was the center of their faith and the reason of their worship. And so they came, they observed, they came to church, they worshiped, not on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, which was the seventh day on the calendar, they worshiped on the first day of the week because it was the day of the resurrection. And every Sunday they came to celebrate the center of their faith, and that is that Jesus Christ was alive. Now I'm going to confess to you some, something this morning. There have been times when I've kind of um, got to thinking, I wonder if all this stuff is true that I'm preaching. You know, I wonder if this really is, is real. And I've had, you know, the devil comes and he tries to plant a little seed of doubt in my heart and mind. And sometimes I get thinking, I really wonder if when I get up there on Sunday morning and I preach this word, is it really true? And then I remember that the basis of everything we believe and say is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We know he lives. It's the most documented fact in history. Second thing we need to say about not only is real hope placed in a person... But the scripture says of Jesus that He remains a priest forever. Did you see that in the text? That just leaped out at me as I studied this text the other day. He says that Jesus Christ remains a priest forever. He remains, what's this? The verb has it, He remains in the capacity of a priest. He remains in the capacity of a servant. Now what He's saying is this that what Jesus is forever and ever in heaven is what He was on earth in time. Now, what was He on earth in time? He was a servant. It means that Jesus Christ remains in the capacity to minister, to, to, to serve you. Isn't that marvelous? That even now in heaven, Jesus remains in the capacity to serve and will always be in that capacity. Now, what was he to those people long ago? Well, to Lazarus, he was the resurrection. To the leper, he was new flesh and a new relationship. To the widow of Maine, he was comfort. To the hungry, he was bread. To the sightless, he was light. To the enslaved, he was freedom. To the cripple, he was legs. To the lost, he was... He was redemption and salvation. Now he remains forever in the same capacity. He's not some dead fact, stranded on the shores of the oblivious years. But warm, sweet, tender even yet, a present help is he. For faith still has its Olivet and love its Galilee. The healing of His seamless dress is by our beds of pain. We touch Him in the throng and press and we are whole again. I want to tell you something about Jesus. What He was then, He is now. There's one other thing that makes Jesus perfectly fit for your need. Not only is it that He is able or that He is alive, but He is advocate now, it says, He ever liveth. Why? To make intercession. And the word means, it doesn't mean it's just praise for somebody. It means to stand in the place of, to be a friend of. Now, the gospel, the, the epistle of, of, of 1 John shed some light on what I want to say. So I want to I ask you to turn to that little epistle right now. Now, you guys that came um, a couple of weeks ago to the noon Bible study, going to get the second dose of this. But I'm, I'm aware that um, preaching is just reminding people of something they already know they hadn't done anything about, and you hadn't done anything about, you know, whoever you are that we're here Friday, you hadn't done anything about it anyway. So I'm going to get a second shot at it. Okay, First John chapter two, verses one and two. Because John gives us the perfect example of what it means to have one interceding for us, an advocate. Look at what he says, my little children. I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. Um, Isn't that that something? I'm going to write this to you so you'll never sin again. You'll never have another problem. But he said, "And and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for those of the whole world. Now watch this. He's just what you need because He is your advocate. That is, He undertakes your cause. The word means really an attorney. Now we got this court scene here before us in this epistle. Here is God who is the judge. Here am I the, the, the defendant. I'm the guilty. I'm the accused. And here is Jesus, the attorney, undertaking my cause for me, my attorney, my heavenly counsel, my heavenly advocate, my attorney. And then there is the accuser, who is Satan himself. And Satan steps to the court, to the the beach, and addresses the judge, and he has this long list of things he knows about me. Now that's between me and and Satan. I'm not going to share with you what he's got on his list, but... He has this long list, and he says, "God, uh, this is what I'm accusing. This is, this is the crime. this is the sin. This is the accusement, and I'm the accuser." And Jesus steps up and says, "I'll handle that. I'll take care of that. He's my attorney. Are you listening? If Satan ever accuses, if Satan ever accuses you, you know what you ought to say, see my lawyer. See my attorney. Back a couple of years ago, I had this infamous wreck up in uh, up in Oklahoma City. This guy ran into me. I never can get hit by rich folks. I? I, I, I got I got black. I got rear-ended and just demolished by this guy who had no license, no insurance. And that's that's my luck. 500,000 people in Oklahoma City, and I had to get hit by a guy that had no insurance, no license, so we had a little bit of a problem, and and I knew we was going to have to do some, uh, maybe have to go to court over that thing. It got got you know it was getting a little bad, so I decided I'd better get me an attorney. And I went down and I I uh, secured me an attorney. Boy, that feels good, doesn't it? My my lawyer, you know. First of all, first time you know I said that, I I, I really didn't. I kind of was embarrassed to say, you know, my lawyer. But boy, that got, that's got a good ring to it, you know, my lawyer. I've got a lawyer. And uh, so I, I called him, I said, uh, I've got this problem. He said, don't no worry about it, Gerald, I'm, I'll take care of it. I'm taking care of it. So about a month later, I was kind of getting a little bit uh, uh, worried about things weren't moving along, and I'd gotten a letter or two from this guy, and I called him up again. He said, hey, I'm taking care of it. I'm your attorney. That's my business. That's what you're paying me for. Uh, I'll take care of it. My attorney just turned everything over to Him. He's my lawyer. That's exactly what Jesus is. He's your attorney. And you know why He's so good at what He does? He says it three ways in this text because of His relationship to the judge. You ever go to court, sure will help if your lawyer is the son of the judge. (laughs) I'm I'm telling you what, that's going to help out a lot. Why is he such a great attorney? Because of his relationship to the judge. And as a matter of fact, it, it says... That he is on a face to face relationship with him. It doesn't mean that that God and, and didn't just mean that God and Jesus, my attorney, are, are 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 father and son. It means they're on an equal basis. I've never heard of that before. That the judge and the attorney have the same equal standing in a court of law, not except in the heavenly court, when the Lord Jesus is your attorney. Because of his relationship to the judge. He's so great to be your attorney because of His record in the court. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. It means that He's perfect. He's never lost a case. And because of His redemptive activity, says that He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, if you'll just watch this just a minute, we'll be through. That word means covering. Has an Old Testament meaning? You remember when Adam and Eve sinned, they, were, they covered themselves with leaves, when God come, came and saw their nakedness, He made for them coverings of skin. Before one could have a covering of skin, somebody, something had to die. The word means covering, means propitiation. What is the covering for our sin? It's His blood. Now watch this. This strange attorney of mine, when he stands in the court of law, here comes the devil and he says... I've got this long list that I'm accusing Gerald of. This is what he's done in life. Jesus said, I'll handle that. Takes the list, looks at it and says, yeah, that's all true. And there's some more that I know that you don't know it's on that list. should be on that list because the devil's not omniscient. That's all true. And I know some more that could be on that list. Strange attorney, isn't it? stands in the court of law when you're accused and says yes everything you say about him is right and even more than what you say about him and when he stands there he doesn't He doesn't plead my innocence. He doesn't plead your innocence. He doesn't plead extenuating circumstances. He said, well, he had a rough day. Had a hard time and and, uh, uh, things weren't going too well. The kids were giving him a hard time. And so he did that. But, you know, he doesn't plead extenuating circumstances. What does he plead? He pleads his blood. He said, he says, Father, he's guilty of everything's on the list. Guilty as charged. But on the basis of my blood, I ask you forgive him. And the Bible says that he kept, keeps on cleansing us from sin by his blood. The only reason I'll stay saved is because Jesus continues as my advocate. And somewhere I've read that we're saved for Jesus sake now watch this Jesus stands before God and says he is guilty of a terrible crime that boy that man is guilty but on the basis of my sacrificial loving dying blood forgive him and you know what God does Over every day of my life, he writes, pardoned by his blood. Now, I have two questions for you. If you were to die tonight, would you you go to heaven? Have you ever come to a place in your spiritual life where you know if you were to die, you'd go to heaven? Second question. Suppose you stood before God tonight, and He asked you, why should I allow you into my heaven? What would you say? Oh, by the way, I have a third question, I about forgot it. Is the Lord, are you allowing the Lord to save you daily? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that Jesus Christ is perfectly suited for our need. Our advocate. Our living Lord. I pray this morning that those of us who have never trusted Jesus Christ, who have no experience in the past to point to and say yes I was saved then we'll come to Jesus this morning and trust Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation and I pray for those of us whose Christian life whose life between salvation and heaven is sagging defeated we'll trust him this morning who is perfectly suited for every need. O oh Lord, we've done our best to lift up Jesus, the one who is the answer to everyone's need. Now I pray that he shall be glorified and honored in every heart and in every response in this invitation. For I pray in his name for his sake. Now look here. There are three invitations this morning. The first invitation is for you to give your life and heart and life to Jesus Christ. Some of you have done that maybe out there as we've talked with you in the home. And you've prayed to receive Jesus and to commit your heart and life to Him. Now the first step is the step of obedience. Publicly declare that faith this morning. You don't have to say anything but coming forward and, and presenting yourself for baptism. Before you can get from one to three, got to go to two. And two is that first step, that first act of obedience, publicly declaring your faith in Jesus Christ. If you really were saved, you're not ashamed of it. You're not ashamed. He's not ashamed of you. Or maybe you've never trusted Christ. You've never confessed with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believed in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that He is the living Savior, able to save. You want to do that this morning? Why wouldn't you want to do that now? Giving your heart to Christ to be saved. Or maybe you just need to come this morning because in the middle is sagging. You've known that Jesus saved you and you know you're going to heaven, but you've really not trusted Him, yielded to Him day by day to meet the needs you have in the present. Or maybe you just need to come and join the church. Oh, it'd just thrill us to death to see you coming this morning. I just know there will be some. Would you do it right quick while we stand, our choir sings?